while we're just throwing out Star Wars shade, how about you and McGregor aging by like Wild. 50 years to become Wild. Ben Kenobi Wait, in what? the fourth movie? Like in, in chapter, yeah. in like A New Hope, Obi-Wan yeah, is very old. Hasn't it been like. And yeah, Luke, Luke is has only aged like 18 years or whatever. But Ewan McGregor is like 28 or something. I know. I have the so answer. So he should only be like the 50. That dude, he Why? didn't believe in sunscreen. Okay. <laughs> And if you live on Tatooine, mm. I'm telling you, you live in you live in the U.S. or Canada, and you don't believe in sunscreen, it's gonna be rough. You're gonna look you're gonna look real old pretty fast. Yeah, if you live in a hut in Tatooine, he's fighting not fighting. Off, he's just hanging out. Else. Maybe he yeah, smokes cigarettes and drinks and doesn't wear well, sunscreen, and then just you know, Pat, 18 this years is goes what they're basing all the never fucking the movies, but... like spinoffs on Disney Plus on. It's like all these unanswered questions. They're like. Oh my god! Like, great. Have I got a show to sell you? You know, because they just did the Obi Wan show. Hello, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Writers Group Book Club. We are a group of authors actively honing our craft while encouraging each other and our audience to just keep writing. We each have a project on the go, so we take turns reading each other's newest drafts and discussing them here. Today, we'll be discussing tropes and Jess's latest draft of Ides of August. So I'm super excited to be talking to you guys about trope. Um, as a romance author, I love trope. And in literature, a trope is basically a cliche writ large. It is a theme that is instantly recognizable to the reader. Tropes can either be subtle, affecting a very small part of your story, or they can be an integral part to the narrative as a whole. And a good example of a smaller trope is in the first chapter of a book, we are introduced to a child playing in a superhero cape. Without having to explain, the author has already communicated to us that the kid probably looks up to superheroes, and by extension, people who do good in society value right over wrong, as well as the desire to make the world a better place. This type of trope allows the author to show and not tell us, the reader, something very important about this character. However, I find that tropes are often used as themes in storytelling. You can probably find a few books that have an enemies to lovers plotline, a down to the wire heist, an army that shows up at the last second to save everyone from certain doom. Using tropes effectively makes your story compelling, chalking it full of good, tried and true conventions that readers love. But beware, because if you are lazy, um, trope writing will have you repeating um, tried and true methods in ways that are actually too familiar and won't catch your reader's attention. So how do you fix this? One of the best things you can do is try to subvert tropes in a surprising way. Think of George R.R. R. Martin's fantasy book series, Game of Thrones. Who would have expected Jamie Lannister, the proverbial knight in shining armor, savior, or savior of the realm, and slayer of the Mad King to actually be a self-interested sister lover? His actual character arc is becoming that knight in shining armor, and it's far more interesting for readers this way. Now, it's almost impossible to write without trope, so you might as well brush up on them. In fact, Pat and Lance have some tropes already in their books. So Pat has the narrative of a young princess trying to save her people from certain doom versus old curmudgeons refusing to see what is right in front of them. And in a previous installment of his book, Lance treated us to a classic heist gone wrong. As a romance lover myself, I have some favorite tropes of my own, of course. There's that one bed at the end for two bickering romantic interests the marriage of convenience plotline that was popularized in Netflix's Bridgerton, and who doesn't love a good Christmas romance? I mean, just ask the millions of people that still watch Hallmark Christmas movies. So I sourced some great examples of tropes from an online forum that I'd love to share with you guys right now. Um, so some people are saying found family is their favorite trope. So groups of misfits, orphans, and outcasts brought together through circumstance, forming a makeshift family unit stronger and more loving than ones they were born into. Fallen hero villain protagonists, or a protagonist's journey to villain. Um, loyal villains. Um, a lot of villain ones here. There's also intelligent characters that aren't assholes 
as well as ingenuity and kindness saves the day. So there's lots of different examples of tropes and just me talking about them. You probably recognized um, some of those ones in your favorite books. So I'm kind of curious just to see what tropes you guys love, Lance and Pat. Uh, you named so many good ones. <laughs> Let me think. I didn't look it up, but for sure I have some protagonist to villain uh, stuff in my first book with uh, Mastim, who doesn't really become a villain, but, you know, goes from being kind of a nice dude to, you know, doing some pretty bad stuff um, and just seeing that progression, right? And then uh, obviously I did the heist chapter of the last book, but the one that sticks out the most is um, is the character in book one, Benoit, whose arc is kind of very loosely uh boy on a farm becomes the hero oh okay except i don't think i ever mentioned it to you you guys but um but except it's instead of a boy on a farm it's like a 60 year old grumpy retired guy which uh and then he doesn't really he kind of becomes the hero but the what i want to get at is for me what was helpful was not using that as a template to write my story because like you said it's going to get repetitive or boring I think the most, the best use for it was um, once I had come up because I planned my story pretty a lot ahead of time. Then I could look at the trope once I had planned the story and say, "Am I missing any of the major things that this trope has?" Right, and that was one of the one of the things I had missed was the fall to Hades. So I had to do a very small change to make Benoit suffer a crushing defeat two thirds of the way through the book, and it it fit really nicely. So. Um, I was so that was for me as a diagnostic tool. It was a little better, I think, than as a template. So I think you bring up a really interesting point, um, and it's something that I came across a lot in my research. Like people ask all the time, "Hey, can I not be a reader and be a good writer?" And this is an issue that comes up, right? Because tropes are very recognizable to people that read a lot, and you're able to kind of study trope if you read a lot of different kinds of books. And so you know what works, what doesn't work, and how to subvert them. And that's something that's hard to teach someone, right? So the more you read, the more you come across that kind of stuff, and the more it appears in your own work as something original rather than contrived. Um, So I think that's another reason why it's important to actually read and take in all that stuff before you like go off and do it on your own. For mine, I was going to say um, the uncool kid trying something out of their comfort zone to appear cool and then it failing, but then they, well, maybe that actually falls into the group of misfits, like the fan family, because that's usually where that ends up. The fan family one is, that's a good one. There's a lot of places you can go with that one. I love that trope too. Yeah, now, once you mentioned it, I never thought about that one, but when you mentioned it, there is a website. I don't remember what it is. Like a full of all the different tropes and it's got summaries of them. I don't remember what it is, but if you search it, it'll come up right away. And I remember I went there once and I just started clicking on them and there's like there's hundreds, it's like thousands of different ones. They're so they're fascinating to read. It has character tropes and plot tropes and all that. Hmm. Really interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, Lance, you have the element of found family in your book now, actually, with all your characters kind oh, of a little like bit. teaming up. Yeah. 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 They were all, it's also like they were all enemies. And then now, like, because of circumstances, they have to come together, but it's going okay. And they kind of like each other. Yeah. Well, that's another trope. The enemy of your enemy is my friend. For now. Is that how the saying goes? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. However, that saying goes. I think that's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. The uh, underdog. Underdog sports. That's another good one. Yeah. But that also often is like a fan family story. I'm thinking of like little giants. There's a, um, I know that in one of Brandon Sanderson's lectures, he talks about how his book, which features these, these, these slaves in a terrible situation trying to escape. He says, this is the same plot as the movie Hoosiers about college basketball. It's just an underdog sports story. He just, he's like, I just changed the setting. (laughs) Who doesn't love an underdog though? This is one of those things that makes writing hard because 
it's like who whatever Latin author who I should probably know right now said all this time ago is that there's nothing new under the sun. You know, all the stories we're writing are basically all these recycled ideas anyway. So yes, like trope writing can become like cliche if you don't watch yourself. But I mean, there are elements to story like when we pick up a book that everyone wants to read just because it's fun to be reminded of those kinds of things, you know? Like Star Wars really isn't that original of a story. No offense, George Lucas. Like he basically, it's a fanfic of the hero's journey or the hero with a thousand faces. Um, And yet like people ate it up so much. So we still are hungry for those kinds of stories, you know, just told in original ways. What Maybe in season 25, we can do a side-by-side Star Wars and Gilgamesh and see how it lines up. Oh God. Yeah. Season 25, I'll see you there. <laughs> That's when I'll be ready for that episode. You know, we can break the seasons up whenever we want. We could call this season two right now. I have the power to do that. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it could be like season 40. Like we're already an established podcast with like yeah. hundreds and thousands of listeners. <laughs> Go back and just change the episode names. Yeah. But yeah, I think uh, like as much as... I agree. Most stories, you know, are some derivative of another one. You use that as a tool to like get a lot more information into your story than you otherwise could have. Yes. Yes. Totally. If you just hint at what trope is and that entire person's backstory might be a trope. And then you can explain someone's very complicated backstory very easily. Yeah. It's like a really effective writing tool. The other thing is it doesn't mean your story is going to be boring or repetitive because there are so many different types of tropes that if you have three, if you have one main character, if you you can have three different tropes and that combination will never have been done before. Right. Um, Or you can just have it and you can, you know, throw in a mix up a couple of different settings and that's how we get originality, right? Your, the individual parts will each also appear in, in other works you know, in some form, but then the combination of them is unique. Totally. Um, I'm thinking about this book I read. So we are going to be doing Twilight very soon on this podcast. Um, And Twilight has a lot of tropes in it, but not necessarily any subversion of those tropes. And so after Twilight, there was a parody book of um, that story that came out, which is hysterical. And, um, yeah, basically anyway, like basically it's like a reversal of the ro- the roles of Bella and Edward and just how like actually weird it is for some of like Edward's actions. Anyway, I'm I'm totally freaking this up right now, but like subversion of trope is a great way to bring like originality to your story. Um and like to try something new. So I think that's like also like a very effective thing you could do. For sure. I and I totally get that Benoit is hero's journey. He well, he answers the call to adventure. Exactly. Reluctantly at first and then Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there's no going back now. That's yeah. the whole story, right? Absolutely. Yeah, all the individual parts are kind of there actually. It's I they're not like it's not super obvious or anything. It's not for, forced down your throat, I think, but should we get to the uh, summary? Cassie is being held against her will at some kind of palace, judging by her surroundings. She meets three women, one of whom knows how to speak English. Cassie calls her the translator. Through the translator, she learns that the other two women are Octavia and Livia, the sister and wife of future Emperor Augustus, although at this point in history, he's known only as Octavian. After a brief interrogation, Cassie is moved to another room. Milo, having also been beaten and captured by guards, has been brought to the Imperial Palace to face up to Octavian. Octavian believes Milo is part of a plot to give the Queen of Egypt and his brother-in-law, Mark Antony, key historical information that would provide them with some sort of advantage over him. He explains that he intercepted Palmer, trying to meet a boat full of officials from Alexandria. Palmer has since escaped his confines, whereabouts unknown. Octavian questions Cassie and takes an interest in her. Games are being held the next day and frustrated with Milo, Octavian has decided to see whether he lives or dies in the arena. If Milo lives, Octavian will take that as a sign of his innocence. 
In Alexandria, confused and battered Hugh finds Ulrich Best seated at a table fitted for a feast with a friend of his, the inebriated Marcus, ranting and raving about a woman who's gone missing. Hugh takes a seat to eat and drink, but Best has drugged his wine, and Hugh promptly falls back asleep. In modern Rome, Sadie tells her assistant to destroy the equipment which opens the rip, effectively cutting off any hope of Cassie or Milo's return. So I cleverly did a bunch of research on, well, not a bunch. I listened to Mike Duncan in the history of Rome, so I would know what happens in the history of Rome because I'm not a history guy. But I figured out who Marcus is, and I felt very smart. Anyways. <laughs> It's a good story, you know, like the actual history of what happens. Oh, yeah. It's riveting. Yeah, it really is riveting. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, um, anyways. OK, yeah. Good. Good section. Um, I like uh, right away. We have English speakers when they come through the rip. So we know that they've gone through this rip lots of times. And English is like they have people greeting them who who can speak their language and everything. So they. Obviously, Palmer has done some groundwork. And actually, on the other side, too, with Ulrich, he also has English speakers. So he is equally as, um, whatever, spending lots of time over there. Uh, and then Octavian. Oh, these are just a bunch of names with exclamation marks next to them that I knew from the podcast. Octavian, I know about Agrippa, Marcus Anthony. Um, oh, I like your little food descriptor. You always talk about that in books, and I did want that food. Is that what they ate then? Yeah. They had yogurt and stuff, yeah. I yeah. guess it's Mediterranean. That's what I think of them eating now. But anyways. Um and then they are they smoke like is it weed? Is he fall asleep from or is it some kind of other Yeah, they had they had weed like yeah. in ancient Egypt. Yeah. But he I, I was trying to like kind of make it more like he what he was drinking was drugged. Yeah, okay. I was like, I didn't think he fell asleep because of the weed, but it does happen at the same time. But he, he sips the wine. Um, oh, and then my favorite part of the whole thing, even though uh, they're both over the rip for the first time and everything, was Sadie's addiction to smoking and alcohol with the gum scene. And, and then, uh, anyways, I really like Sadie's character. And everything she does is very, like, telling of who she is and then they break their passage back for some reason and it's only been like i assume that the rip that the time is elapsing at the same amount of time on equal sides of the rip so it has not yeah. been very long and she is already axing their way home and palmer's escaped so maybe that's all kind of part of the same maybe sadie is stabbing them in the back i'm not sure and trapping them on the other side of the rip um, yeah, I don't have too many more comments than that. I was just so proud of myself for figuring out the Marcus thing. <laughs> that, uh, And yeah, Cleopatra's gone missing. And she's not with Octavian, so she's somewhere possibly with Palmer. That's my I, also hot take, I guess. That's all I got. Can I ask who Marcus is? Because I tried to look it up real quick right now. And Marcus Antonius. And, and that's how you say it, right? Antonius? Yeah, Mark it is Mark Antony. Anthony. Oh, Mark Antony. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, sounds good. It was between that or Agrippa. I wasn't sure. But again, that was just a two-second search. So awesome. Sounds good. That checks out a lot. That's really good. Um, I didn't clue into that. And now I like it. That's that's really awesome. It's okay. You don't have to clue into it right away. No. I was, and, you know, I think with cool stuff like that, I said this when we were doing the last book, like last year. In a in a in something like that, I like it when one of the two people notices, because that means that it's not super obvious, but it's not super obscure. Yeah. Right? So again, small sample size, but still, it's pretty good. One to two is exactly that's awesome. All right. So uh, I thought this was. I go through my comments. I thought this was quick and action packed. Again, it was awesome. The plot is uh, really moving quickly. And I know that you said, I think in the last podcast, that you wanted this book to be a little bit shorter. And I can tell, I think, that you're culling it. Yes. you trying to stay focused. Yeah, I, I really like that. Uh, I like all the viewpoints switching. Um, and I like 
trying to put together what's happening with your four different viewpoints. And I can't wait for the rest of the Sadie chapter. Uh, like Pat said, I really like, I really like um, Sadie's character. I think, like you said, like he said, everything she does points towards her character, and and I really like it. Uh, so going, uh, com- I'm going, uh, just going to go through my comments here. Um, so Cassie's been uh, transported to Augustus's house, and the two women are his relatives. That's cool. Uh, and that the English speakers have been coming for a long time. Now that could mean anything. Uh, maybe even it could mean before Palmer. So how long have English speakers been coming through time travel? Uh, and it's been at least 20 years because Milo has been around for ages and uh, he would have come through. Uh, it was super cool that we saw Octavian. I thought that was awesome. Really uh, cool personality. Uh, a little different than what I would have maybe expected from him, but that's awesome. And also he's he's really young at this point, right? Um I re- so I really I really like the Octavian part. That was really cool to see him kind of get really mad and and frustrated because this is probably you know the most stressful point of his life. Um. So Augustus uh, he hates Cleopatra. That checks out, uh, and he thinks Palmer is involved. So I'm I'm really interested in all this. So what is what is Palmer doing? What did he do that was forbidden? And um, how much does Sadie know? And what does Sadie know? I'm really um, interested in this. I think the way you you kind of put the you know the um, you know the carrot on the fishing pole. You, you know what I yes. mean? I feel like that, and I'm just grasping forward trying to get it, and it keeps eluding me a little bit. So I thought that was really good. <laughs> good. You have to keep reading. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and I really so yeah, I really like the scene with Octavian. I got a lot of good information. It was very stressful, aggressive, and action-packed conversation, which is, uh, we talked about that recently. I really like that. Um, Ulrich is so weird. I'm really weirded out that Ulrich is not in a big rush. You know, he, uh, so that was, that was, uh, that's my biggest thing about Ulrich. I'm like, what's, something weird is going on. He's not in a big rush. And finally, they broke the rip machine. And now they can't come back. So how are they going to get back to the present? I'm super excited. Uh, I have three hot takes, though. I have one uh, more okay. that I, I just remembered. Okay. Go ahead with yours. Okay. Um, well, I don't know if this is a hot take, actually. But they'll have to... Cassie's going to have to use Ulrich's rip. So they're going to have to, whatever, kind of double-cross Octavian, maybe, and go over to Marcus's side and use their rip. I'm not sure. But... That's the yeah, only think, rip that they're going to use to get home. I think they're going to have to go through the Ulrich Mark Antony rip as well. Um, I'm really interested about what Palmer did that was forbidden. And I'm wondering, is it a don't change the past situation? So my last hot take is you made a point a few times of they asked what her name was. And she said, Cassandra. And they were like, ah, you're Greek. She's like, well, you know, I'm just probably an American person who, you know, is the name Cassandra. Big deal. I think that she's going to give a prophecy. That's my hot take. Like make one up? Yeah. Like she's going to prophesize something or cause the fall of a city. Right? She kind of could easily prophesize a lot of stuff. I mean, I could, and I know hardly anything about past exactly this moment in Octavian's life because I haven't got any further yet. That's <laughs> true. That's true. true. But, so, you know, yeah. the myth, the myth that Cassandra, the fall of Troy and all that. Yeah. So that's what I think. I think you're going to do a parallel and maybe I'm just reaching, but like you mentioned her name twice and they're both like, ah, Greek. And like, ah, that's a Greek name, but I don't know. That's my hot take that there's going to be a, Cassandra Troy parallel. You know, I love my Greek names. My other yeah. character um, in my other book was also um, a Greek virgin that had a bad time. So I guess that's just my trope, guys. You know, <laughs> you already have a Livia and an Octavia, which you had in your last book as well. But oh my God, did I really? I did? Yeah, but these people are. There's Octavia in the last book, isn't? No, maybe um, it was Livia. Livia. There was definitely Olivia. Yeah. Well, maybe there, maybe there was though. 
Yeah, I have I like to. I'm, I have to go back and read. I've already forgotten. I, I've just. I've just characters. forgotten that whole book. Of course, yeah. You just got to move on. Move forward. Never read. Oh my never god, read. you have to. Yeah, never edit. Just have a bunch of first drafts on your desktop and never touch them again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's. Yeah, we'll we'll have season two edits and rereads. Um. So no. I will say, like, I think all your hot takes, like, are really are great. I I think you guys are a lot on the right track. I'm not holding the cards so close to my chest on this one um, like I did on my other book because like I don't care at all about this book. So <laughs> that's kind of fun to like um, – yeah, yeah, but okay, great. I'm glad like all of that stuff is coming through and that you guys are enjoying it. And yeah, it's just a fun little ditty. But here's something else I will say, because um, Pat mentioned earlier about like the historical uh, nitpick stuff. Like I have to condense the history of what I'm working with like down to a week basically. Um, so all the stuff that needs to happen – that I think took happened over the course of three months is going to be happening like in a much shorter timeline. Um, so just, just cause I, I don't want to deal with all of that. That's so. totally fine. I, I think yeah. that like it's fiction. Everyone obviously yeah. it's fiction. It's totally cool. Also the, the past is changing because other people are affecting it. There's new players in the game. So you yeah. can, you can write that up as long as your, your time travels make sense. Like they don't have to be perfect, but like, you know, they don't like, you, you you can't sail from wherever Rome to Alexandria and you know I don't know in the right Augustus probably you know at the very end he could be like make sure the history book records this as taking three months <gasps> or whatever and oh could, that's a good little save you could do whatever he wants because he's an emperor. you don't you could you could even not have it be explicit you could even just have and this is an edit a second version two problem but if it is a problem you think you could just have him say like. Like have him sh- show him ordering people to record things differently throughout. Yeah, yeah. Right, like changing meeting minutes or whatever. No, yeah, that yeah, yeah. Three totally. Months, not two days. Just totally. Yes. You know, there's so many depictions. So, like, it's actually fun getting the opportunity to do a historical depiction of these like famous characters because there's so many versions of them out there and i don't know i've talked about hbo's rome before but how they portray octavian as basically like a psychopath that has no care in the world except like the ends of his power like getting to that augustus part and then there's um in the book and TV show, actually, I, Claudius, Augustus is kind of portrayed as this, like, fun-loving, bonhomme kind of guy who, like, lets his wife do all the dirty work and politicking on his behalf. And then he's kind of just, like, the the happy-go-lucky kind of guy. So it's interesting because there are very different depictions of him. And then, of course, like, you can read the historical sources. Um, the historical sources will tell you that he was a brilliant man. He was this. He was that. Um, but, you know, they're written by people who obviously yeah, who's were... Paying? Who's paying? Exactly. Yeah. Who's paying? And, you know... Anyway, so it's just fun to to get the opportunity to. Wasn't he sickly? Right, those characters. Wasn't he, wasn't he a sick kid or something? And didn't he miss a bunch of important battles because he was sick and Agrippa took care of them or whatever? Isn't that part of his story? No. Um, I'm not sure. Like people refer to him as like a pimply kid. You know, he was so young, like when Caesar died, and he kind of like took over Caesar's estate. Um, like he and Cleopatra, I think like he was probably younger than Cleopatra, not by much, but they were almost contemporaries, mm. mm-hmm. which makes them super interesting. Um, cause they controlled like pretty much the, between the two of them, like all the known world at that time. Um, man, interesting part of history. Now that I'm talking more about it now, I'm like, oh, I actually kind of like this book. Um. <laughs> I do too. It's a good book. I like it. I like, I like it. It's great. It's very okay. What's your word count that you're aiming for? Oh, I don't know. Probably like I think probably forty thousand okay. words. Oh, really? Yeah, a novella. Yeah, you're like not there? not long. Like a nice little, you know, Stephen King, St- Stephen King size book. You know, Carrie was a novella. I I think you can tell a good story in like 
not a lot of words. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys, for reading. Damn, another week. Should we talk a little bit about next week? What are we doing in Twilight next week? We are doing the book club portion of Writers this podcast. Book club, book club. You heard that right. Two book clubs. <laughs> and for some insane reason, I convinced these two blokes to read Twilight. You know what? Wait, it's not for you guys. Like, I'm just telling you, it's for 14-year-old girls. Okay? You turn, you turn 30, and all of a sudden, it's okay to read Twilight. You know? It's not a big deal. When you're a 14-year-old boy, then it's harder to justify reading Twilight to yourself. You have to do it in secret under your covers. Yeah. But now you can do it on a podcast and, you know, critique it in front of the world. <laughs> all of our yeah. millions so, of subscribers. Listen, I started reading it. I've been reading it for almost a week now. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like my opinion has changed on Twilight as a whole. And I'm really interested to see what you guys are going to think about it. Changed up or down? Um, In some ways up and other ways down. Hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. I have an interesting history with this book um, that I will shout at you next week like when we talk about it but I kind of went from being like a Twilight lover because no one else had read the book so I felt like I discovered this hidden gem when I was 14 years old um and then I became a hater because too many people liked it you know and I had to be cool and now like I'm kind of like a Twilight apologist but reading the book again I'm like oh no like there are some issues that should have been corrected um in a first draft. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I'm, I bet it'll change again. Cool. It'll be a different kind of uh, one star review with Jess. (laughs) We're going to have to read some twilight one star reviews just for the hell of it. Maybe you'll write one. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to read a book without convincing myself by the end that I liked it. That's kind of my whole thing. Good for you. For me, reading a book is a lot of work, so I always like it. I think you're going to like it, Pat. My pro- That's a good outlook. <laughs> I like most books I read, too. so But I mostly choose them myself. So not that I'm not choosing this, but. I think if I don't like a book, I'll put it down. Like, I won't read past, I don't know, 100 pages. I think 100 pages solid is a solid, like, if you read the first 100 pages, you don't like it, I think you're good. You can just put it down. You know what I mean? Like, there's not that many books that have a meh first 100 pages, and then it really gets going on page, you know, 105. Did you guys ever keep watching um, the new Lord of the Rings stuff? No. Apparently, it's good. I don't know. I watched the first 15 minutes, and I turned it off. But apparently, it gets better. I don't know. Cool. Lance, have you? I'll get around to it, but I haven't uh, watched it. Apparently, it like finally got better this week. I mean, I'm just like six hours is a lot to invest for the promise of it gets better. Getting good, yeah. It's too much. Okay, guys, I I do have a one star review. Mm, Let's do it. If you want to do it, let's do it. Okay. This is a long one. Yeah? We, we got to fill some time. We're... Okay. Are you happy just to sit back and relax for this rant? Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. I'm hoping that I won't frig this up, but I have to remember in these one-star reviews to keep it anonymous because basically Lance and Pat are going to guess what it is at the end. Um, okay. So here we go. In her excellent podcast, Sentimental Garbage... Oh, shout out to Sentimental Garbage. Caroline O'Donohue mentioned how, as a female reader, you spend significant time in your teenage years and 20s reading books because some dudes told you they were good and important, and it takes ages to shake off the shackles of that influence. I feel like that's true for young women. This is like an aside. I feel like that's true for young women, but I feel like that's just true for young people also in general. Like, you know, you're kind of told you must read these books because anyway – 
blah, blah, blah. Back to the review. And also, there doesn't seem to be a corresponding cohort of young men reading Maeve Benchy or Jilly Cooper because the girls like it. So, it was with me and the blank title of this book, or as I call it, title of this fucking book, I bought in 2003 when I was in school. A boy whose opinion I sincerely cherished told me in my 20s that it was his favorite book, and it certainly pushed me to pick it up in my current mood of reading all the things. And it sucks. The only hilarity is really that now, I now, like Caroline, have the have the onus to, or something that is a typo to understand that boys liking things is not in fact the best marker of quality of like anything, but especially books. Ooh. You know the plot to this story. I know the plot to this story. It's cultural osmosis. And also it's completely fucking obvious from the very early on that the mad priest with his imaginary fortune will turn out to be sane. And like everyone else who dies in the book will do so conveniently so that the main character can get his money without a qualm. He then goes on to get revenge on the men who put him in jail under false pretenses. And on literally the last page, we find out he's supposed to have been doing this from pure religious motives. Even though the priest who gave him the money specifically said, do not use the money for revenge, my dude. The main character is like, sure, bro. And then does that because God, I guess. Here's a short thing. Here's a short list of terrible things about this book. One, the length. It's 876 pages. Why? Why though? Two, RE1. I've read plenty of hella long books and I don't take exception to length. I take exception to the fact that it's so long for no reason. Every chapter is its own short story because it was published as a periodical, duh, where the end of the story is telegraphed from the first sentence of the chapter. Like the scene where blank is escaping through the chimney and I sat through it in pain going, I literally hate this character. He set fire to his own mother. The outcome is obvious. I'm not remotely invested in this outcome. Why the fuck are you making me read so much about it? My notes on the chapter where main character discovers the treasure island is real and makes plans to cart it away say, you never get the sense that anything might have been different. There's never any sense of unease. Main character is basically indestructible, his own deus ex machina for every plot difficulty. Wow, what a trope. The women. Oh, the women. Author needs to join the I've never conversed with an actual living woman club, of whom key members include Trollope, Hardy, and Dickens. There's Mercedes, who has no character traits except that she's beautiful. And when she is no longer beautiful, although conveniently widowed, she retires gracefully to die. I take it because... The main fucking character has another love interest by then. The love interest is his slave, Haiti, that he bought because he has a habit of buying people. She also likes to get, <laughs> she also likes two decades younger than him, but whatevs, I guess. Yay for Stockholm syndrome. There's Rita, the bandit girlfriend who kills herself because uh, of reasons to spare her men dishonor which is like the best trope ever not look at this delightful depersonalization from our friend a man has carried your off your mistress a man has seduced your wife a man has dishonored your daughter that is pro dueling that is a pro dueling argument by the way point four people are not described their motivations are not described i kept mixing up character and character because there's no real difference between them and then the final point the whole thing, basically. <laughs> the one good thing about this novel is the character who predictably is described as offensively, off-puttingly independent. She elopes with her female music teacher while dressed as a man and goes off to live presumably happy ever after as a male presenting musician. She is dope. Okay. What book is that? I have a guess. Yes. I guess. Uh, Pat? I don't have a guess. I have no idea. I'm going to go with uh, uh, Escape and Revenge. Is it Count of Monte Cristo? It is the Count of Monte Cristo. Okay. okay. <laughs> that was a great wow. review. She I was like very mad. But like literally that is, that review is almost as long as that book. I guess Wonderful. you need a lot of words to critique an 800-page book. It was like really very long. 
like it I mean, I love it. I appreciate it. And, you know, really like you going on Goodreads and posting that is truly like doing the Lord's work so we can laugh about it like on this podcast. Um, But damn, like that was long. Like that must have taken a few hours. Is it accurate? To write the review? Yeah. Like that's not like a stream of consciousness review. I've written dumber stuff for less, (laughs) like for stupider reasons. (laughs) <laughs> and put them on the internet. I don't know. Uh, Jess, someone, you, no, but someone the- just put. I'm going to confess something. I didn't finish this book. I will never finish this book. You could have just well, done that. It. They didn't have to finish it either. <laughs> Jess, have you read it? I've read this book. Oh, you have. Okay, is the review accurate? I guess, like now that I'm thinking about it, like the whole the the whole thing, like the character is his own Deus Ex Machina. That is true, but I like I found like some parts of it compelling. I found the love story compelling. Um, I found like the escape from prison very compelling. I liked it. I, I don't know, like yeah, I I don't think it necessarily deserves that level of um, vitriol. vitriol. Yeah. But maybe it does. Um, like I said, to each their own. The, it sounds like it'd be a good movie. It, it uh, by the way, it is a great movie, and some of the problems she talks about, which are true, like the much younger love interest, like that is fixed in the movie. They do like a good job, kind of adapting it to modern audiences. It's so freaking good. Yeah, people are like, I may have actually liked it more if I read it in installments as it was first published, and that's probably true. I wonder what kids are reading in like middle school and high school these days. I think they're still reading The Outsiders. I never read that. What's that? Oh my God, my favorite book. The Outsiders? The Outsiders. It's so good. Did you read The Outsiders, uh, Lance? I don't remember. What's In it school? About? It's like Pony Boy is the main character. Pony Boy and their soda pop. Oh, it's like a super popular middle school book. We read it in grade, I think, seven, seven or eight. And it's basically about a group of like these greaser boys in the 50s in the American Midwest and like a murder is committed and a few of them have to flee. It's so good. I think I read it. I think I had to read it. Yeah. Yeah. In grade seven, yeah. I think we read like The Giver. Oh, I didn't love The Giver. No, it's a weird weird book. I read it also in French in another year. Okay. The yeah, actually that's a great point. The Giver was definitely a book we read. Um and then in grade 9, did you guys read Flowers for Algernon? No, we did uh um I think that was Brave New World. Oh, that's a good one. And we we had to kill Mockingbird too. Oh yeah, maybe that was that one in grade 9. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty classic book. Yeah, and then I read Jane Eyre um, in grade 11 because you had to do independent study. And then in grade 12, I read Don Quixote. Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, is a long-ass book. <laughs> that, I like, I was actually crying. I wanted to change it so, so you bad. independent study and then you picked the long one. I'm, I think it was actually just like from a list of books, like a suggestions. I was like, oh, yeah, I'll do that one. And I remember going to chapters and seeing how big it was. And I was like, oh, oh no, no, I can't. But then I started reading it and I actually really liked it. And I chose it because that year we were going to Spain, like my grad class, like on a trip. And like part of it is like – anyway, whatever. There was a tie into Don Quixote and I was like, that would be cool. And um, yeah, it was really long. Don't I read, recommend. I read, um, uh, what's it called? Oh, Famous Last Words. Did you guys read that? There's sad horses in it. I, I thought you would ominous. have read something like Catch-22. I read that in, uh, I, I think I read that in grade 11 or something. A different, no, you know what? I signed up for it, but someone else had taken it. So I read it anyways and then did my project on a different book. <clears throat> True. But you spent so much time doing Shakespeare in high school. Even like we did Shakespeare, I think we did Romeo and Juliet in grade 
grade eight and then we did a shakespeare every single year in, grade, in high school like, that's a lot of hours instructing how to read gibberish like it's not useful <laughs> really at all it's not it's not that bad it's yeah i didn't gibberish. find shakespeare I can't, that bad. I can't understand it at all i spent the whole time reading the other page that explains it in english yeah you need the other page you need the other page that's for sure i don't know that you need that anymore the whole study at all there's so many good books that you could read instead but like shakespeare's the father of modern literature yeah but now we have modern literature though you could just read that yeah but i mean like when i was talking about trope it's like all the shakespearean plays like that's it that's the canon of western literature like if you read every single one of his plays like literally whatever people write are just are just literally callbacks to shakespeare but maybe so, like one or two Shakespeare's and then you can move on to something. Else. <laughs> the compromise. <laughs> yeah. Do Hamlet. Still, Hamlet was good. You know. Hamlet Macbeth. is so yeah, good. Hamlet's solid. And then do that one. Can move on after that. Macbeth is Stream, great. Eh, I don't know about Summer Night's Dream. It's a little confusing. <laughs> and they're funny. Shakespeare's I, funny. He's it's a definitely ham. definitely really funny when you have to explain it like seven times. <gasps> to, to um, figure out why it's funny there's this great show i i lance actually you would love it like but i you know i'm a shakespeare nerd um and it's called upstart crow and it's with the dude from peep show if uh, like it's so funny it's about like shakespeare and it's set like in the 1600s or whenever he was like like late 1500s early 1600s and like him writing his plays and it's like a, it's done like a sitcom it's so funny would highly recommend my dad's cousin did like i don't know if it was his doctorate or what but um on basically he like discovered some like songs kind of hidden in or he's, he realized that some parts of shakespeare were supposed to be sung anyways it was a big deal for for shakespeare community yeah, I guess like a, like new shit must not come up that often, eh? You'd think they'd pretty much have nailed it by now. Yeah. Well, thanks to, for coming to Shakespeare Cast. Yeah, thanks for complaining about books cast. I guess. Um, <laughs> it was a really good one star review. That was really good. Like honestly, guys, like shout out to the Goodreads reviewers who are so down to have like a glass of wine at their computer and just type out a friggin' long ass angry review. You guys honestly are so great. I love all of you. I'm gonna put so much effort into my Twilight review. Just throw it into the void. No do you know what it. we really should do? We should all write a review for Twilight. I'm already starting. Are we? So are we going to – so Jess, you unofficially picked Twilight. Yes. Does this mean that one day I will pick something that and force you all to read? I think so. Okay. I think that's on the table for sure. Can we have some criteria? Yeah, I'm be, not going to make – no, no I, I'm very cognizant. There's not going to be anything. Just I read one chapter of a book recently where like the volume of information was like – was crazy but it was really compelling it was a bunch of people arguing about stuff and like they were name dropping names and places and people and stuff that had not shown up on book three of a series and i've no i never heard of what they're talking about but it was really compelling and interesting and then i was really interesting how they did that but oh man fantasy people just love that shit eh i gave a book to a friend and and then i felt bad for buying it for him for his birthday that's like over a thousand pages has a full glossary and three maps in it. And I was like, this this is a serious fantasy book. And like th- I handed it to him and I was like, actually, you know what? You don't have to read this. Like, I'm so sorry for saddling you now with this book. Like, <laughs> I actually this is Apologizing actually very rude. For sharing your book. Yeah. Two, two things. Very rude. <laughs> One, my first draft of my last book has more than three maps already. But it's not that complicated. I like drawing maps. Two, what book was it? I've not read this book. So this is like not a negative view of this book at all, except for the fact that it is long as hell. And that is just an observation. That is a neutral observation. It's called The Priory of the Orange Tree. 
apparently it's it fucking rips. It's like really good. But there's like you are lost for the first hundred pages. And then finally you start to understand what's happening. That is so. a trope of the genre. No. A little bit. To be lost. There's ways hell. around it, but or to be confused forever. Confusing. You well, are like- always confused. And and then like you forget, right? Like like I handed my sister name the wind. <laughs> And I was like, this is such a good book. It's so amazing. I think Name of the Wind is actually very accessible. I think so, too. Yep. I think so. But you are kind of lost, like, for the first little bit. I don't know. Things are pretty familiar, actually. I think, actually, you know what? No. Like, that's a bad example. It's very accessible, I think. Well, I think it depends on what you normally read. Mm, That's true. Right. That's all we have for today. If you want to do the homework for next week's episode, oh, you'll have to read Twilight. Um, that won't be posted on our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash WGBC podcast. Um, but thanks for listening and remember to just keep writing. George Lucas said it wasn't long after I began writing Star Wars that I realized the story was more than a single film could hold. As the saga of the Skywalkers and Jedi Mm. Knights unfolded, I began to see it as a tale that could take at least nine films to tell three trilogies. And I realized in making my way through the backstory and after story that I was really setting out to write the middle story. Yeah, oh. right. Whoa. No, that's, that's completely told in retrospect. There's no way he <laughs> thought he was writing nine movies when he started writing the first one. That's bullshit. Okay, maybe. There is evidence. That? That there's some compelling evidence, though, that it was meant to be a standalone. Yeah. I could see that? it like leaving the door open for a sequel, but there's no way he knew there was going to be a trilogy of prequels coming. Like and that to be coming episode four. There's no way that Luke and like some of the evidence, like the the commenters pointing out, is that Luke and Leia are clearly having a budding romance in the first movie. There's no hint at the fact that they are indeed siblings. No connection between them. Um, there isn't the slightest connection between Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. Darth doesn't react to Luke's presence on the Death Star. He doesn't recognize him as anyone important. On the other hand, he does recognize Obi Wan Kenobi. Seems rather odd that a Sith who can recognize his mentor cannot recognize either of his children. He doesn't react to Leia either. The only thing Vader can recognize about Luke is that he's powerful in the Force. Yoda doesn't exist in the first film. Um, in the second film, he trains Luke and is purported to be the Jedi Master who trained Obi-Wan. In the first prequel, Yoda is revealed to have had little to do with the training of Obi-Wan. Well, whatever. That's like a continuity issue. Yeah, big deal. 20 years later. Yeah, big deal. Yeah. Actually, that's some, that's some compelling evidence that that guy shared. They all get yeah. their medals at the end. Like It kind of seems like it's all over. They blow up the Death Star. You do they get didn't medals. know there's going to be four more Death Stars to blow up. <laughs> oh, by the way, like the Death Star thing is such a trope. Now, like Lord even when I was watching Lord of the Rings, like min, what is it? The uh, like Helm's Deep also has like a critical error in it that makes it oh, easy for them right. to break in. It has the wall, the the wall. What's it called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has like the grate that they the pull. Grate, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even it's even the same size as the three by three, no bigger than a wall rat thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's this is a hot. It is. What's the? The freaking airplane movie. What's that one called that just came out? Oh, oh Top, Top Gun. Gun. Top Gun. The maneuver Again, is yes, the another Death Star thing. Yeah, he's going That's a through great the, example. the trench and then he shoots something and has to go straight up. It's exactly the, the Death Star thing is such a trope.